0: All right, everyone, let's call a timeout. This podcast is proudly sponsored by the Medical Indemnity Protection Society, the indemnity partner of four out of five healthcare students. It's free to become a student member. For more information regarding MIPS student membership, please visit qr.mips.com.au. We'd like to start this episode today by remembering Philip Severuk, our esteemed colleague from the Melbourne Medical School who passed away last week. We remember and celebrate him as a gentle soul and a passion-filled inspiration. We send our heartfelt condolences to his family and friends and encourage all of you to reach out and to be there for each other, no matter how small the gesture. My name's is and I'm joined in studio today by Associate Professor Riyadh Liang, a general and breast surgeon who is the surgical lead at Bond University in Queensland. She is also the chair of RAC's Operate with Respect committee, and has nearly 8,000 followers on Twitter, which is 8,000 more than me. Here is someone who uses her position to fight for others, and her battle is incessant and inspiring. Welcome to the show, Ria, and thanks for being here.
1: Thank you, Ganesh.
0: Well, to start us off, for an introduction into your specialty, would you like to start by telling us a little bit more about what your specialty entails?
1: So I'm a general and breast surgeon, which is to say that I completed my general... Training And as part of that did um, what would constitute these days a fair bit of a breast fellowship. Now, one benefit of being Asian is that I am actually older than I look. So I trained in the old days before the current set. Training program in the old BST AST system. So the last two years of your training often constituted more or less a fellowship, and that many people didn't go on and do a subspecialty fellowship. A lot of people just went out and hung up their shingle and called themselves what what their interests was, yeah. you know, a, a colorectal surgeon or a breast surgeon or whatever. Um, that's changed, of course, since then with the SET program. So I do. Uh, one in six general call roster, which is to say, I can, you know, do all the standard general surgical operations, largely emergent, um, so obstructed guts and um, pus in all its forms and um, everything related to bowels. <laughs> um, but I have a subspecialty interest in breast surgery and have been fortunate enough to give, be given the opportunity to help set up a breast multidisciplinary unit on the Gold Coast, which now includes all the subspecialty. Services such as medical oncology and radiation oncology, plastic, oncoplastic, reconstructive surgery, um, as well as um, because I insisted as a woman that we also include all the non medical supports. Um, okay. So um, social work, cancer psychology, lymphedema team, all that sort of thing um, is all included in there as well because it's not just the cutting or the medical treatments that constitute comprehensive cancer care.
0: Yeah. Absolutely wise words, and I think we will be interested to unpack that a bit later as we get to some of your current work. For now, some warm up questions. Are you ready, Ria? (laughs) Oh, yes. All right. So, take us through your day so far. How do you like to start your day, and where are we at at the moment?
1: Well, um, I'm currently half time academic and half time clinical. Um, I Choose just to simplify my life by only working in public. So I don't run a private practice at all. Um, That allows me the space in my day to be a mum and have my family. So um, this morning I got up and I got the kids ready, and there's all that lovely morning stuff, you know, packing their lunches and getting them ready and anticipating the day. One of them has their photo day um, at school. So there's all that excitement about making sure they look their best. Anyway, so then I dropped them off at school, then I did the groceries, then I came back and then I made a start on my academic work. Um, Some of that is my position at Bond as the surgical lead. So um, organizing teaching, um, reviewing curriculum modules, figuring out where we're going with COVID and putting things online. Queensland has been thankfully very lightly touched by COVID, but after more than twelve months of this, that that can change in an instant. You know, you can go into lockdown in an instant. Yeah. Um, so we've got to, we've been gradually building up um, our resources to cope with that if it should happen. But even if it doesn't happen, the point is by doing that work, we're going to make the teaching much more accessible to lots of people. You know, if you're unwell, um, if you have a family event or whatever, you can still keep up with your colleagues um, by using the online. Um, opportunities to carry on learning and we found that there's been um, much improved performance and better engagement from students because of this and you think well did it take a pandemic to do this you know why (laughs) haven't we thought about this before why was it always the case that you know you had to drive all the way into campus and find somewhere to park your car and attend the lectures in person you know to to engaged so um, it's been quite a good shake-up for us so that's part of it but i'm also um (laughs) having a slightly mad mid-career move taking up a phd which was fully scholarshiped and also came with additional grant funding, so I couldn't really turn it down. And it was in a passion project area for me. So um, some of my academic day is spent devoted to that as well.
0: You're right. The pandemic has forced us to reconsider our assumed routines and the so-called immutable. However, with all the hours spent online, it does make one wonder whether there is a point where productivity may actually have taken a hit. In terms of spending your time and some hobbies on the side, are you listening to or reading anything at the moment that you'd like to share with us today?
1: So I'm not much of one for fiction. I read a fair bit of nonfiction and it's a mix. So sometimes I like to dig into something really meaty. So at the the moment, it's um, in quantum physics, funnily enough. So I'm rereading some of the original works of uh, Richard Feynman and digging into some of the developments in quantum since I left university because I am still a nerd at heart. But, you know, that's not the sort of thing you want to read right before you go to bed um, because then you're awake till two in the morning kind of figuring out all the stuff that you just read so I always have something light reading as well and so just to match that I'm currently reading some a book called Packing for Mars by Mary Roach um, which is about the practical things that we have to think about before we send people to Mars and it's just side-splittingly hilarious because it's very bodily function oriented so it's perfect for general surgeons I mean like what do you do with urine in space you know and they, they talk about how on the moon missions um they would jettison this stuff out into space. Um, and of course it would freeze solid um, because it's, you know, minus whatever degrees out there. And it would just drift off. But the amazing thing is, you know, so many missions out there have jettisoned these little packets of urine on a daily basis. In the frictionless environment of space, these things just keep moving forever and ever and ever and ever, you know, straight up Newtonian physics. Um, so, that, you know, when you think about it, you know, in the book talks about things like, you know, we sent off, oh, what was that? probe, you know, that has like a recording of um, human music and Beethoven and Mozart, you know, thinking that aliens, if they come across it, will be able to decode it and figure out who we are, but they're much less likely to encounter that than they are to encounter some of our excretions. (laughs) that we've jettisoned (laughs) because there's thousands more of those than there is of that one probe Um, and that's kind of an interesting thought that you know if if there are I mean I shouldn't say if there are aliens it's almost certain that there must be because the universe is so large but you know alien contact with humans is much more likely to be with something really boring (laughs) like like a lump of frozen urine than it is with a probe (laughs) with all our highest achievements yeah but it was just interesting thinking you know if we're going to go to Mars which is going to take them years just what do they do with all that stuff?
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. And for everyone listening who is considering a visit to Mars, well, you should check out that book. It's um, <laughs> being recommended. Fascinating image that we now have in our minds. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, on to another question that I thought I was very interested to ask you. If you could sit down with a historical figure, alive or dead, who would you like to sit down with and have a chat with and why?
1: Well, you know, she's not that historical, because she's only just passed away last year. But you know, honestly, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has to be top of the list for almost everyone, right? Like, we wish she could have lived to about 250. Um, But she was still doing such amazing work, even as she was struggling with pancreatic cancer. And I identify with her on a number of levels, not just because she's a kickass woman, but also because she was tiny physically, you know, this tiny, tiny, skinny, short lady made so much of an impact. Um, And she didn't tolerate bullies at all and neither do I. And of course, she made such an impact in law, I can't hope to make so much of an impact in medicine, I don't think. Um, but maybe if I keep plugging away till I'm 70 or 80, maybe. But yeah, no, wouldn't you just love to kind of bring her back and just, just, you know, just spend so many hours with her garnering all her wisdom?
0: Yeah, um, absolutely. Because I've heard reports about how she kept going with a personal training, her personal trainer did push ups at a funeral, I think, just as a sign of respect for the incredible power that the woman exerted. And now in terms of another of these questions, if there were one profession outside of surgery that you could try, what would it be?
1: Well, I turn that question around actually, because when you say could try, I'm like, well, why don't you just try it? The thing is life is long and we're all going to retire about 20 years before we actually pass away. The average life expectancy for a woman in Australia is I think 84.1 years or something and theoretically retirement age is in the 60s. So what are you going to do with that last two decades? Providing the thing you want to try isn't something that is too physically demanding, you can still do it. Um, And I guess I am thinking even longer than that because the women folk in my family tend to live live past their hundreds. Um, we're a family that's blessed with exceedingly good genes. So when I say that I, <laughs> I am blessed to look a little younger than I actually am, you know, it's like I'm a few runs off a half century, actually. Um, but in my family, I'm not actually yet halfway. So when you think about your career, the career, the actual surgical career is only the bit in the middle. It's like, well, you, you probably had a bit of a career before that, and you'll definitely have a bit of a career after that. And having that philosophy means that you're not afraid to tackle giant projects. Because people are saying, well, how long will culture change take? And you're like, mm, 20 or 30 years probably. Because to establish a new behavior, just like smoking or smoking cessation or, or getting people to wear seatbelts, you know, takes yeah. decades. But I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure I can take that on because I'll still be around to, you know, see it through. I might have to think again when I'm in my 80s, because by then I'll only, in speech marks, only have about 20 years left. But, but you know, it's it's like you're not afraid to tackle these big projects. So when you say what else could you do, you know, could you try? I'm like, well, no, I do fully intend to try the other things that I plan to do. Um, I, I did have, before I went to medical school, my piano teacher's qualifications, and I'd love to do a bit of that. Most of all, I would like to teach little kids to read. I saw with so many kids the difference it makes for them if they can read by the time they start school. You don't realise how much of your world is mediated by reading. Even being able to find the name of your classroom or the sign that says toilet, <laughs> you know, makes a big difference to your ability to feel at home in a space. And... Um, and a lot, I, th- I think, far more kids in Australia read poorly, not because they are unable to, or, or particularly thick. You know, it's it's not them; it's that they haven't had the inputs to teach them to read. And there's that critical age before you turn about, probably six or seven, where if you don't establish it, it's it's actually much harder to establish beyond that. And it just breaks my heart. You know, I'm, I'm as you know, I'm very big on social inequity. Mm-hmm. It just breaks my heart when you see people, even as adults, like even at medical school, like it, it's amazing they achieve so well, but they still actually don't read very well. You know, they don't read fluently. They, the ideas don't go easily into their brain. You see them read the same sentence twice before they understand what it says. These are things that it's far too late to try and change in a twenty five year old. You know, we we have to address them at a much younger age and and there's so much that could be done in that space, um, all around Australia. You only have to go over one or two suburbs to find a school that could do with an extra teacher's aid for reading. Oh, so I feel plan to volunteer is like your your reading teaching aid granny. <laughs> and I will just yeah. sit in the corner of the classroom and read with whoever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You they get it sorted. <laughs>
0: and with those book recommendations that you've had, I'm sure they would enjoy the process as well. This would be a great segue then to start talking about your childhood yourself. Um, tell us about your childhood. Where were you born and where did you grow up?
1: Yeah, so I was born accidentally in Hong Kong. Um, there's a story about that. I know I look like I ought to have been born in Hong Kong because I'm ethnically Chinese. But actually, by that point, my parents were New Zealand citizens. My older sister had been born in New Zealand, was a New Zealand citizen. And mum, I don't think, realised that she was pregnant, um, but had, had uh, you know, wanted to take the um, firstborn child back to Hong Kong to show the relatives, as you do. Now, from New Zealand to Hong Kong back then, I gather, took about 36 hours on three separate plane trips. So you take a smallish plane from Auckland to Sydney, change to a bigger plane. The plane was not large enough back then. I'm talking 1970s, not large enough back then to get from Sydney to Hong Kong in one go. So they would stop off in, I think it was Nandi, Fiji for refueling. And then, yeah, so it it took about 36 hours and three trips, I'm told. Anyway, so quite a demanding trip to take with a newborn. Anyway, by the time they took it, my sister was... Let's think now. There's about, there's just over 12 months between us. And I think mum had, had probably figured out she was pregnant again by the time they took off. But they, you know, plane travel was expensive back then. I think they'd committed. And so my father tells this fabulous story. So fa- father's a pediatrician who has, a, has made a huge mark in medicine. So he has an ONZM, which is the equivalent of an OBE um, for his services to medical research. So big shoes to fill. But he um, tells this fabulous story of... Um, going out, can't remember for what reason, with his brother, my uncle, um, and coming back to find a bit of paper taped to the front door that said, you know, wife and labor go to hospital. And this was the era when men actually, you're expected to so- sort of be at the hospital, but not expected to be in the room. That was secret women's business. So he and his brother ended up just pacing the corridor until I arrived, yeah. um, screaming bundle of joy. And then because the trip back to New Zealand was so strenuous, they decided not to do it because by then they had a one-year-old and a newborn Um, so they didn't actually end up going back to New Zealand until I was 18 months old. But since then, I've lived in New Zealand, grew up in New Zealand, did all my training in New Zealand right up to the end of surgical training.
0: Fast forward a few years, what were you like as a child and teenager growing up, and how did that influence you to this day, do you think?
1: I was a very awkward, very shy child. I remember my mother coming home from the parent-teacher interview, and it must have been my first or second year at school, and she said, oh, the teacher says you have to speak up more. And when you're five or six years old, this makes no sense at all. You know, the feedback makes no sense at all. I was like, what do you mean you want me to speak up more? <laughs> you know, I think I'll self combust and, you know, fall into a hole in the ground if, if I try and do that. You know, it just felt like such an impossibility. As the years went on, I have slowly found my voice, but even at medical school, you know, if you ask my peers, I think they'll probably remember me as the kind of quiet, shy, very academic Chinese kid, usually in the front row somewhere putting my hand up, but, but you know, socially awkward. And it's been an effort, I think, in the years since to learn to navigate social cues. Some of that is an intercultural thing. Um, So, for instance, in Chinese culture, it's very rude to look someone in the eye, particularly if they're senior, Um, whereas for white people, you know, that is considered a basic mark of respect and honesty. So learning to navigate different worlds. So I kind of have a Chinese persona where I'm a little bit quieter and shyer and um, defer to my parents by their honorific names. Um, And then I have a sort of white persona, which (laughs) is kind of odd because my father and I, of course, both circulate in that world. He's a pediatrician, I'm a surgeon. So there were some interesting moments in Grand Rounds, for instance, when they'd present a case and I'd be sitting there calling him Ellen and he'd be sitting there calling me Ria. And that is not something that ever happens in the household at home.
0: Interesting dynamics that you would have had to navigate. But back then, now, you have mentioned that your father was a pediatrician. Was that part of the reason why you got into medicine? Or were there any other indications that you would get into the field back then?
1: Yeah, medicine is a bit of a default field for my family. Dad's actually the, I think, third generation. I'm the fourth generation. Um, So not just my father, but his Father And I think there was someone in the generation before that as well, Um, and our extended family as well. So when we have big family get togethers, there's often quite a few doctors of different specialties in the room. I guess what that meant growing up was, you know, our house had a lot of pediatric textbooks, which I quite enjoyed reading from when once I was able to from about age 13, 14 onwards. So the medical words came very easily to me. Um, I did notice when we started medical school that people from non-medical backgrounds, one of their challenges was just learning the language. The words are completely new to them, whereas they were quite common for me. Um, the other thing was dad was a, did not speak English natively. You know, he had learned it at two at, university level at Hong Kong Medical School, but he didn't Speak it as his first language. His first language is Cantonese. So once as soon as I was old enough, which was again about 13 or 14, I became his prime proofreader. Um, and his field of research was immunology, so I, I got very familiar with things like Fel-D1 antigen yeah. um, <laughs> and, and things like that. And I would proofread for the syntax, you know, making sure that it sounded like a native English speaker, but also with my medical dictionary open, thinking, what the hell is this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what does this mean? Um, it was utterly perplexing to someone in what would now be sort of year 9, year 10, meet... Yeah the medical literature for the first time and, and try and make sense of it.
0: Yeah, and there you were proofreading everything and making sure they made it to the um, journals at that time. That is amazing. If we continue our journey now in understanding how you got to where you are, we then take a peek at your medical school days. Now, where did you go to medical school?
1: So I went to Auckland Medical School. There weren't many choices in New Zealand. You either got into Auckland or Otago. So the stakes were very, very high. You didn't have any other options.
0: In thinking about your days back then, you mentioned that you tended to be a bit quiet, but how would you describe yourself as a medical student?
1: Oh, superbly nerdy, very nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never, never really out of the sort of top quartile of the class, um, but socially awkward. Um, and of course, we, we recognize much more the importance of social and cultural learning just as much as book learning, but it wasn't really a thing back in the 1990s. Um, you, you know, basically, there was a big emphasis on book learning, and you pass the exams, which were largely high stakes written exams. We do much better now at recognizing the sociocultural aspects of medicine and how important it is that we get the culture right, but it wasn't really a big thing in the 90s.
0: Yeah. So do you feel that your cultural learning tended to start back then in medical school?
1: I think some things stuck in your brain, but they were not part of the formal curriculum. They were what we call the hidden curriculum. Um, we have form in this area. So dad was, I mean, dad in his later career was, was um, you know, lauded for his action against racism. But I can tell you growing up in the household through the 1980s and 90s, it didn't feel like he was... Being praised for being an anti racist, much at all. Yeah, no, there was a lot of it. I remember once the home phone rang. I mean, this is the day in the landlines, you know, no mobile phones, the landline rang and I picked it up. Um, And because we were a medical household, we'd all been taught very good phone manner. So it was like, you know, good morning, my name is Rhea. Who would you like to speak to? How can I help? Um, And and this diatribe of, get back to where you came from and I'm not having doctors like you look after my children and you dirty, you know, keep your dirty fingers off our white children and all this sort of stuff came out. And dad could kind of almost hear it from, from where he was, he was in the next room and he was like, just hang up Ria. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he said that in Cantonese, not in English, but you know, that equivalent, yeah. I remember being quite shocked, you know, I was quite shaky for quite some time after that. The, yeah, the it would have
0: been for a child to pick up the phone and hear yeah.
1: that. Yeah. Even coming into the hospital system in the 1990s, there was still a great deal of that. I mean, there is even now, really. With Black Lives Matter, we've become much more aware of it. It's not overt. People will not say that sort of thing to you in public very often anymore. But there's still a lot of unconscious bias that we have to um, address.
0: Yeah, Um, more of a structural kind that is present in the system. Yeah. Um, And so you mentioned that back then you noticed a little bit of that in your as a medical student, do you feel that that impacted your learning?
1: No, not really. I mean, I was always a very, very good book learner. (laughs) You know, that, that part didn't bother me at all, but I did notice things like um, surgical rotation was where it was most obvious. I think that I happened to be in a rotation where I was the only um, woman out of six or seven students on that particular unit. Um, And quite often I'd be given a different work assignment from everyone else. Um, it was very overt. I mean, you'd be shocked to hear about it now, but it it, it did actually happen one day that the, the professor came in and said, Oh, I've got a man with a really interesting sign and, um, you know, come along and I'll, and I'll show it to you. And then he turned to me and said, um, would you run and grab me a cup of tea? Yeah. <laughs> you know, he didn't expect me to go with the rest of the group to, to see this particular sign. I think because he assumed that I wouldn't want to be a surgeon. Yeah. Um, yeah, I must say, I finished that surgical rotation swearing that I would never be a surgeon.
0: Okay. Hmm. Yeah, which does, um, which can be the experiences of some of the people listening today, that one wrong interaction turns you away from the profession um, as a medical student because it is quite a formative period. So how did you renew that passion for surgery again then?
1: Well, it was a accidental thing. So um, I did actually have um, an interest so so my general thought, just to go back a little bit was that um, when I turned up to medical school, I was seventeen because I'd been accelerated at high school um, and I was quite proud of myself full of bubbles um, and thinking, gosh, I think I'll be the youngest person in the class well um, a 16 year old boy turned up Ooh. in the class as well and so there was only one solution for that he is now my husband um, <laughs> But as we went through medical school, um, he had decided that he wanted to do specialty training in psychiatry. And we didn't tend to marry, um, you know, and have a family eventually, although at that point, we thought we'd we'd leave it until we finished medical training, because we were so young going into med school that we thought, oh, plenty of time, you know, we'll finish our medical training and then start our family. So having thought that he would do specialty training, I wanted to do general practice just purely on the basis that that was portable and flexible and I could do it, you know, while he pursued a specialty training and that would be a really good balance. Um, And I still think if I'd become a a Jeep, I wouldn't be unhappy. You know, I I think it's fascinating and I think it's a wonderful job and my GP colleagues do uh, an amazing job. But I did also think though, um, my husband's from, not from Auckland, his family originally are from a place called Rotorua, which is quite a small Um, town in New Zealand and so I thought right I've got to get some more skills because the GPs in Rotorua quite often do like minor surgical things yeah you know and um, they're, they're quite uh, broad-based as rural generalists um, so I deliberately did my selective at medical school and plastic surgery so I could do all the little skin excisions and minor rotation flaps that sort of thing okay. um, and then for my elective I actually went to Wales and did orthopedics Um Thinking oh, I'd, I'll be able to reduce, you know, close, do some close reductions and have an idea about how to put on a cast for a colleagues fracture, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But the end result of that was I graduated with looking like a surgical candidate. You know, it was like, you look like a surgical candidate, partly also because I'd done well enough in the, in the final exam to score a viva for the surgical prize. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't actually get the surgical prize. But the point was, you know, you score the Viva for the surgical prize and your selective and elective were both in surgery. And so everyone's like, Mm. oh, so, you know.
0: Yeah, so it seems that you fell out of love with surgery due to that interaction and then found your way serendipitously, um, one might say, back into it.
1: Well, I, I wanted surgical skills. I didn't think I wanted a surgical career.
0: Okay. And here we are, and you've created something that works really well for you. Going from the self-proclaimed nerd in medical school to a powerhouse of a woman. And so coming back to those days, as a medical student, take us through your mindset back then. What were your dreams, goals, and ambitions? What, what were you thinking about?
1: I to know, really. My older sister, so the one who's, you know, only 12 months older than I am is Renee Leang, the award-winning poet paediatrician. So okay, yeah. he also has letters after her name and the fact that I don't yet have letters after my name. Um, so I think she's a mem- uh, an MBE, a member of, well, the New Zealand equivalent, MNZM, I think. Um, so the fact that I don't have them yet is, is like, you know, the running family joke. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So, you know, to follow in footsteps like that, um, we were always just one year apart. So, you know, when she was in second year med school, I was in first year med school. And so to live in the shadow of a father and a sister like that, I didn't quite know what to think. I was just following my nose. Each rotation I did, I'd think, oh, this is good. You know, maybe I'd want to do this. Um, It's funny, recently in a bit of a cleanup. Um, those of you who follow me on Twitter will have seen it. But recently, in a bit of a cleanup, I found some of my old assessments from sort of fourth year medical school. And I did score very high marks in medicine, as well as psychiatry, as well as surgery. So I was a, I was an all-rounder, I guess, and I didn't have any clear idea of what I wanted to do.
0: Yeah. And now with a perspective that is afforded from being in your position at this stage, what do you think that, what are some experiences and opportunities you think medical students should be seeking out?
1: It just depends what they want. Now, there's a tendency to feel that there is one particular best way, but there isn't. Um, What we need in medicine is maximum diversity. You know, if we all go and do research projects and then we all get brilliant references and then we all go into specialty training, that will be to the detriment Of the medical profession as a whole in Australia. We want those people who want to fly planes and do retrieval medicine. We want the people who, you know, um, have a strong climate change focus, for example, um, and want to look into that epidemiological link. Sorry, I've never been able to say that word properly. (laughs) You know, we want the people with unusual hobbies or unusual interests, because the world is changing so quickly that you do not know what will be useful next year, or in five years from now, or 10 years from now. I mean, who would really think that research scientists who were investigating a type of vaccine that had never been done before called RNA vaccines would suddenly become the superstars in this last 12 months? Or who would have thought that it was useful to have people in Australia who took an interest in overseas pandemics like SARS and MERS? Like, what is the point of that? You know, and so that so that's the thing. I hesitate very much to say you should do this or this is what you should do because it it is not that you know there is not one pathway that is best. We need maximum diversity. You know please follow your nose and your interests. Do not worry if you take a giant detour it'll come in handy at some point somewhere along the way and it'll make you a better person.
0: Yeah a great message to hear for people who are struggling whether to you know, abandon some of their hobbies at the moment because they have to focus. I do believe you know there is a time to sit down and focus, but not at the expense of who you are as a person. Mm. Um, and so at that point, and for a bit of a reflective exercise at this stage, is what's one thing that you thought to be so important as a medical student that didn't turn out to be?
1: I don't know. I mean, the things that turned out not to be important for me turned out to be important for other people. Mm-hmm. So it's not for me to say, you know, why on earth did we learn all those molecular markers? <laughs> have, it used, you know, have not used them since, but, you know, they are seriously important for people in other specialties. Um, I think what would be really useful to me in medical school, though, is more flexibility. Um, there's this idea that everyone has to learn exactly the same curriculum. Um, and sure, there should be a core curriculum that everyone should need to know, but I'm like, Would it be so much of a challenge if, say, 30% of the class learned all those molecular markers, you know, um, while another 30% learned something different? You know, why do we not build more flexibility into the degree um, so that people are a little bit further along to where they want to be when they graduate rather than all coming out cookie cutter? Um, And that's recognizing that medical students are a completely different cohort from what we used to select. You know, mine was an undergraduate entry Um, You graduated quite young. I was only 22 or 23, I think. Um, That is an age where people are now getting into med school. In fact, it's quite common to get into med school even older than that. People have an idea what they want to do. They have life experiences. They have an idea where their interests lie. Um, Providing they tick off some core competencies, then surely we should allow more flexibility for them. You know, we should be in, 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 medical school should be an enabling institution. Not a constraining one, um, but you know, I I only took up I've the bond surgical lead position is one I've only taken up last January, so that was my very first interaction with the university sector. Yeah. Uh, before that, I was only in post tertiary training, um, you know, training of surgical trainees. So um, those are ideas that I I'm just gently kind of bouncing off people and getting some perplexed looks, but it's something that should I get given the opportunity would be lovely to pursue.
0: Yeah, and for that generational change that you mentioned at the start, um, these are the seeds that are being planted at the moment. And we're certainly um, glad to have you advocating for these things for medical students. Now, if we move on then to after medical school, can you tell us a little bit about the training that you went through?
1: Um, Went to Rotorua for our internship. Yeah. and stayed on for another year. So our postgraduate one and two years were in Rotorua. Now, Rotorua is tiny. The centre of town back then was only four city blocks. You know, so it had a chemist and a police station and one single Chinese takeaway run by my husband's aunt and uncle. <laughs> you know, um, It was a lovely place to spend time in um, because you really got to know the community. You got a really broad-based education. You certainly did a lot more Medicine than you would in a big city. So, in a big city, an intern and resident often feels like a slightly secretarial job. You know, there's a lot of paperwork and admin and not actually much of the actual medicine. In a small town, you you get your hands dirty a lot more and there's much less hierarchy. So, that was fabulous first and second year. One of the bonuses of spending my first two years there was that everyone there had to learn at least some minor surgical. Rotorua back then worked with just eight residents. Um, And a smattering of something that might resemble registrars, but actually had no advanced training position. So there was a mixed bunch of, um, you know, PGY3 and above who had lost their way or were doing it to fill in some time or had arrived from Scotland or, you know, all sorts. Um, But they were none of them were advanced trainees. So we all, even as first years, you know, even as interns, had to learn at least some basic surgical skills because no one else was going to come help you in the middle of the night when the abscess needed draining. And as the years went, as, as first year and second year went by, I think the, the general surgeons there, there were four of them, as well as the other specialists. So I think we had two ENT specialists and um, orthopods as well. But they'd say, um, Rhea, you picked that up really fast. Shall I show you the next step?
0: Yep, um, it or
1: whatever, And it, it got to the point where by the end of my second year, there was one list where I did an entire ENT list with the boss sat in the tea room and it was little stuff, you know, popping grommets in and things, but, but I was incredibly proud of myself. And I'm thinking back thinking who as a post-grad two these days gets to operate like that. I don't know if that opportunity still exists in small yeah. town. After that year, we um, went <laughs> from one end to the other. My husband Got his first advanced training position in psychiatry at Westmead in Sydney. So we went from the smallest hospital you can imagine to the biggest hospital you can imagine. And I did a standard, um, I don't know what they call them, surgical RMO rotation at Westmead. And I know, looking back, I think the bosses must have thought I was an arrogant, cocky little thing, because I arrived and they said, What can you do? And I said, Well, I can take out a simple appendix. I can do a hernia. I can skin graft. I can, you know, um, do some minor orthopedics and minor ENT. And, you know, for a PGY3 to be saying that, I'm sure they thought, oh, for goodness sakes. But they soon figured out I actually could. So so there was that peculiar situation where um, a boss would say, Ria, can you take so-and-so through this procedure? And some PGY5 would glare at you like, who the hell are you? Anyway... The year after that, my husband and I decided because we were only 25 by now that um, we'd gone through too fast, you know, that we just needed mm-hmm. to take some time out and work on ourselves as people. So we actually backpacked around the world. Um, and I tell mm-hmm. you, if a marriage can survive 12 months of backpacking, it can survive anything. So um, you were
0: already married by then? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, we came back. Um, and so I'd done it all the wrong way around because. The, the surgical bosses were like, you can't take a year off. Um, it's not showing your commitment to surgery. Um, when are you going to do your research? Um, you have to stay here and get your references, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I thought, well, that's fine. I shall come back and start GP training because that was always my original plan anyway.
0: Yeah, no, going back to the plan. <laughs>
1: you know, like it was never a big thing. I was never one of those people that was like, I have to do surgery or I'm going, oh, I am going, or I think I'm going to die, you know. Mm-hmm. There are those in our class, and, and by and large, most of them have become surgeons, so good on them. But I was always a little bit ambivalent about that, and I think that was good because it never totally crushed me, you know, if it wasn't going to work out. Um, but when I got back, the bosses were like, right, so when are you going to apply? <laughs> I was like, you hypocrites and meaning You're the ones who have guilt-tripped me about not going away and never being able to be selected and blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. So I applied that year and got on that year.
0: Yeah, and they realized that the skill set that you were bringing with you was something that ought to be encouraged. And it was all testament to your hard work that you you know, picked up from all those different places.
1: Uh, no, I wouldn't think it was me. It, um, there was a kind of political thing going on at the time where the New Zealand uh, Surgical Selection Committee had been smacked on the hand for not having enough women in surgery. Okay. So I had a suspicion I was a token hire because I was certainly low PGY, you know, this was my PGY four year, low PGY and underskilled really compared to a lot of my colleagues who got onto training.
0: And at that point, after your experience, um, both in those stints, as well as your time off, what were the things that were driving your decision-making in the early stages of your career? What was important to you back then?
1: Well, the important thing was just, you know, the original plan was for husband and I to get through training as fast as we could so we could start our family. So I just put my head down and worked away. That came a bit of a cropper in my second year of advanced training. Um, so keeping in mind that advanced training, the four years of advanced training, as it were, functioned for most of us like the last two years of set training plus your fellowship, the two years of your fellowship. Um, so I was quite senior already when I say I'm in my second year of advanced training, um, but accidentally fell pregnant. This is over 16 years ago. I can date this because that's the age of the child now. But but the College of Surgeons was slightly flummoxed. They were like, oh, we don't really have a policy for this. We're not sure how to handle it. Yeah, and they were very supportive, um, but they just didn't quite know how to go about it there were a lot of phone calls to, you know, the college of physicians and such like kind of going, what, what do you do with your trainees um, when this happens? So flexible training wasn't a thing then. So I lost a whole year of training. I actually worked for most of that year, but the thing was children come when they come Um, because you're not allowed to take more than I think five weeks off in any six month rotation. Um, I had to go on early maternity leave because I went into uh, premature labor. Then the stubborn wee thing actually stayed until its due date. So I spent weeks and weeks <laughs> on bed, bed rest after my little bout, <laughs> you know, so I went into premature labor. It came in during, during a trauma call. So I'd, I'd done a trauma call and after the patient had been wheeled off, you know, um, out of the trauma bay, I'm standing there going, Oh God, that's sore. And then three minutes later, Oh God, that's really sore again. And the, trauma, the um, ED consultant was like, straight to delivery suite with you. Yeah, yeah, but once I'd had a lie down and a rest and been rehydrated and all that, the contractions actually stopped. So I was sent home on strict bed rest, as it was called, which unfortunately, rear style is not strict bed rest, because I can't stay still. And so it was pottering about the house doing things, rest. Um, But then the stubborn first child actually didn't actually deliver until his originally planned due date so it was a good eight weeks of not doing much at all being very frustrated at home Um, but because of that and then of course I took the usual bit of maternity leave after that but because it spanned more than like the two ends of two six-month rotations that whole year of training did not count. I see. Yeah so that was some of the problems which we've since corrected, you know, so flexible training is a thing now and we do, we have part-time training arrangements, but that was an example of the gender bias that wasn't because anyone was being frankly sexist. It was just a systemic bias. It was a way the system was set up that discriminated against women, not intentionally, but just because of the way it was set up.
0: And undoubtedly the brunt of those decisions would have fallen on you in deciding what do you have to do? Are you going to waste a year? And so to speak. And so I suppose any surgeon or aspiring surgeon is thinking about this next point of um, work to life balance, which would have crossed your mind back then. Do you remember what your own take on the matter was back then?
1: We were very lucky in that we've always had very, very good support. Um, it's true that it takes a village to bring up a child, particularly true in non-white cultures, which have often got extended family arrangements. Um, So we knew that we could always call on one or other set of parents, Um, you know, my parents, my husband's parents. Um, We knew, we also, um, it was difficult. We moved house 11 times during my training. Yeah, New Zealand back then only had 4 million people It now has five, but you know, 4 million people and spread across the whole country. So it's basically like Sydney, but spread across the whole country, which meant that instead of rotating, when you rotate from hospital to hospital, you actually rotate from town to town um, to get the experience that you require. So we did actually have to move house a lot. So in each place I would very diligently, you know, very quickly make friends with like the neighbors, the people across the road, the parents at the childcare, um, other mums at the hospital and, and, you know, just work really, really hard to get those social, it was like speed dating, you know, you, you just had to get the social network set up as soon as you could within two or three weeks of arriving so that um, you had people to help support you um, in the keeping in mind that there was no such thing as part-time training back then. So it was full-time or nothing. So you'd just throw yourself into the full-time Um, Also keeping in mind that full-time surgical registrar back then didn't, didn't have the fatigue limits that they have now. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I had to just, you know, I'd arrive in one place kind of speedily set up these networks and throw myself into registrar life. Um, And of course I have the most supportive husband in the world as well.
0: And so in going through all of that, you would have gone through your fair share of challenges. Some of the ones that we're interested to get into today is firstly about the culture of surgery. Were there any adaptations that you feel you had to go through to fit in as it were and for those people thinking about this at the moment what would you say to them
1: yeah and so it's funny i think back and i think i'm exactly the wrong person to be a surgeon i'm the right, wrong size and shape i'm the wrong race wrong gender <laughs> um i dislike early starts intensely i'm much more of a night owl i'm you know it's like i'm five foot tall i weigh 40 kilograms you know i'm a complete lightweight A lot of the discrimination, I mean, obviously, there are bastards everywhere. Um, It's not just in surgery, but you will find horrible people, but they are in the minority. So occasionally, you'd meet a boss who was just sort of like, oh, you're not cut out to be a surgeon, you should quit now. Or, you know, Maria, what you need is to, you know, grow some balls, put some, you know, strength into it, you operate like a woman, you know, that's meant to be a insult. I mean, I think that women surgeons are rather good operators but anyway that was that was cast as an insult you know I as much as I can I mean you can't help it they do have their emotional impact on you but as much as I can I just ignored all that because when you look past that the majority of people you meet are actually supportive they might just not know how you'd have bosses who are six foot tall and your classic surgeon saying now this is the way I mobilise the right colon then they'd look at me and they'd be like and I'd be like yes, you're quite right. I cannot stand on the left side of the body and reach across and pull that right colon towards myself like you do, because I face plant into the abdomen because I'm really not tall enough. So they were generally supportive when I'd say, do you mind if I just kind of do the same maneuver from the other side of the body and see how that goes? And so when I got to my fellowship exam, it was really interesting. I did score one of the higher marks for my fellowship exam, I'm told. I mean, they never really disclose it, but, you know, I'm told, yeah. told that I did rather well um, by some of my bosses who were also examiners. Um, and they said what came through, what came shining through was that you'd done the work because we got to the operative viva and someone said, you know, someone comes in with an obstructing lesion on the right colon. How would you manage this and what's the operative approach? Yeah. And Everyone has their little patter that's like, you know, I would um, give them induction antibiotics and prep and drape in the usual style and blah, blah, blah. But then I'm the one standing there going, now, I do actually do this slightly differently. I stand on the opposite side of the patient to most people normally. I mobilize the colon away from myself. The benefit of that is that I can see the ureter earlier than you would if you were peering over it from the other side. The downside is that sometimes I have to pass the colon over to my assistant to get proper traction as I'm getting very medial towards the aorta, you know. And so when you can talk like that in your fellowship exam, the examiners know that you have done the work, that you are safe, that you can do do the stuff you're talking about. Um, And I think that's something that the current trainees are sometimes missing through no fault of their own, um, but the changes in the work setup nowadays often means that the trainees sometimes struggle to get the numbers they need to really get fluent with their operating.
0: And so you would have um, adapted in a sea of what were your stereotypical surgeons at that time, they looked and uh, operated in a certain way, and you had to create that for yourself. Mm -hmm. Now, another thing that we'd like to get into is about the respect um, that surgeons owe and give to each other. I remember you speaking at an earlier edition of our student conference and two quotes that um, have stayed with me and a few others um, other of my colleagues were, it's not about winning the argument in the room, but about winning the room.
1: Mm-hmm. And another
0: one was, stamina is required, but not to endure bullying and harassment. So which both have to do with how to manage instances of being disrespected. What can you advise the people who are listening might be going through such events, should they be concerned about their position in their hierarchy in dealing with that?
1: So in an ideal world, so fast forward 20 years, and I would like to be able to say it shouldn't matter where you are in the hierarchy, you should feel able to speak up. Now we're partway along in this bit of work, you know, this bit of work that's going to take me 20 or 30 years, (laughs) in that (laughs) things have improved a lot. Every single surgeon in Australasia has done the online training module. And so they understand as part of their mandatory CPD, where the limits lie, what they, what constitutes bullying, harassment, sorry, bullying, discrimination and harassment, but knowing that and actually instituting it in your workplace are two different things. So your generation is coming into this part way along um, there are a lot of, there's a lot of awareness about it. There's a lot of posters that say there's zero tolerance, but you will see instances of it frequently. Um, not the really overt stuff. So I'd be surprised if anyone has been physically assaulted or had a sharp thing thrown at them, but there's still a lot of the microaggressive stuff going on. And hierarchy is still an issue. We talk about the flattened hierarchy, which is well proven to improve patient safety when people are, feel able to speak up then you have enhanced patient safety, because every year in Australia, in the media, there's some complete disaster of a complication. And it'll come out afterwards that there were any number of little flags where that could have been prevented, but people didn't um, pick it up or speak up about it. Um, And it's a multifactorial thing. Maybe they didn't feel able to speak up about it. Maybe they were too tired to even notice because of fatigue issues. So it's not a unifactorial thing, it's a thing we have to work across in a very multifactorial way, very complex. But we are steadily moving towards it. For the moment, the hierarchy is still reasonably steep. um, And students, of course, won't want to do their future career prospects in um, by, you know, speaking up to their own detriment. And I'd like to reassure you that that is not what the operate with respect program is asking you to do. So the message for consultants is very much the standard you walk past is the standard that you accept. So we expect all consultants to call it out amongst their peers when they see it. But we do know that juniors, if they follow that bit of advice, may end up doing that to their own detriment. Um, in terms of retribution sorry retribution, victimization, um, you know, refusal to write references or just people badmouthing you around the corridors. So that is not what we're asking you to do. Um, what we would like you to do though is to not forget to think, now I have seen that and I have considered speaking up and if you have the skills then please do speak up or mention it to someone safe such as your training coordinators. But if you feel unable to speak up directly to the person in that moment, hold on to that thought until you are senior enough to be in that position yourself, because memories are short. And people say, oh, this will change with the new generation. You know, the new generation, the millennials, you know, I mean, people use terrible words like snowflake, but, you know, the millennials are soft and sensitive. They're all lovely. When they become consultants, they'll all be different. We've got quite good emerging evidence now that that is not the case. Um, Power corrupts absolutely, as they say. Yeah, This is something we have to keep working at. People will say, oh, I remember being bullied as a student and somehow still become a bully when they are consultants.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah. And actually, when you think about it, we knew this would happen because it's the same as anything else sociologically speaking, it's what we call intergenerational transmission. So everyone, Mm -hmm. um, kids who are sexually abused or kids who experience domestic violence are much more likely to become um, sexual abusers or domestically violent themselves. Um, People who grow up with alcoholic parents are much more likely to become alcoholics themselves. Um, And so we've got a whole generation growing up in a culture where bullying is still a thing. and, And so we know that the chance that your generation will become bullies yourself is higher. So this is the thing I'm saying to you, you know, I know you might not be able to say anything right now because the hierarchy is still there, but please can you not forget? Please can you remember this? You know, for another 10 years until you become a consultant.
0: Yeah, and to be then in a position where you can enact change for those people who might not be able to speak up for it. That does I suppose reassure us in a way, but also tell us that sometimes it might be hard for us to do that. And the message will be to go and find people who might help you. Because would you say that the person does not operate in isolation? There, There is a lot of support around them. Yes. Um,
1: so I have found that universities and medical schools are, are very proactive now. If you report that you have been mistreated, they will work quite hard to extract you from the situation or speak to the supervisor. Um, certainly in my institution, you know, um, bosses who have been repeat offenders are no longer allocated students, for example. Yeah. Um, so so that's very heartening because um, it used to be, and when I went through, that, it used to be like, stop being such a soft, you know, usually there was a, you know, gender aspect, it would be like stopping such a soft woman, you got to suck it up, put your head down. Um, Medicine is hard, the world is unfair. Um, And that old chestnut in my day, blah, 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 blah.
0: Now, in moving on and learning a bit more about your journey, we now get to your current a bit about your current work, where I gather that you have started a PhD on intersectionality, intersectionality, and the development of the surgical identity. Uh, I think a lot of people will be fascinated to hear about this. How did you come to be involved in this project?
1: So, I mean, I didn't think anyone would, you know, support me to study this because it was just a little germ of an idea in my head. Um, But I have been an educator for a long time, so I think I mentioned I had my piano diploma before I started medicine, for example. Um, And even within medical school, when I was a third year, I was helping to deliver some of the first-year lectures, for example. Um, So I've always been an educator and then as a surgical educator, I'm I'm faculty on a number of different courses and have rewritten a number of the educators courses as well um, to bring them up to date and I did the, I was in the first cohort of the Masters of Surgical Education offered through University of Melbourne with other wonderful alumni like, um, um, let's think now we had Julian Smith and we had Stephen Tobin and we had Martin Richardson, who I know you've interviewed previously and, um, you know, just, just a wonderful cohort to go through with. And But as it turned out, my master's project ended up publishing in The Lancet. It, it, it just took me completely by surprise. I thought, well, A, it was a qualitative project, and I gather it was one of the first pure qualitative projects that The Lancet had published for quite some years. Um, secondly, it was on a really... Um, to me, quite niche project. my original research question was very simply, why do women leave surgical training at twice the rate of men? I mean, there weren't that many of us to start with, but I knew that a lot of the girlfriends I'd started training with had not completed training. Um, and certainly the data from the college showed that 20% of women who started training didn't complete as compared with 10% of men. Um, and that this just exacerbated the, the disparity coming into consultancy. So that was the research question. And it was not something that you could apply quantitative statistics to because the existing disparity meant that the total sort of target population wasn't more than sort of 50 or 60 women all up. So statistics were never going to be useful for us. They would not be robust. So we used qualitative technique and found out some really useful things, the most challenging of which for the College of Surgeons was that the women in surgery programs that they had put in place with very good intentions were actually working paradoxically. They were being unhelpful. They were worsening the discrimination.
0: Okay. And can you tell us a bit more by that? What do you mean?
1: Yeah. So it it objectified women and increased the distance between the women and the men that they needed to support them. So keeping in mind that when I started training, the proportion of women in surgery was about 7%, 93% male. And so what you actually needed was to narrow the gap between men and women, not increase it. Um, But by putting women in surgery programs in place, what it meant was that you were a woman before you were a surgeon. So you'd turn up and everyone would be like, oh, we're getting one of those women in surgery ones, you know, trainees. Um, And there was assumption that we must have gotten through on lower, you know, that we were not as capable um, or that we slept with someone <laughs> yeah. or, you know, they were like, oh, well, you know, they have to have these programs for the women because they just can't make it in on their own merits was sort of the assumption. Not everyone thought like that, but there were enough people who thought like that, that that sort of experience, those offhand comments about that sort of thing was quite common for women in my generation. We discovered this through the research. And so you will have found that the college has been very responsive to this and um, you will find that we don't. I mean, we have a women in surgery section and it's very active. But when we talk about changes to training, we will generally talk about things that are good for all trainees. So, for instance, the flexible training toolkit, which was released just a few months ago, mm-hmm. uh, is for all genders. And we use that word, that phrase, deliberately because there's more than just two genders. Yep. Um, And so it's for all genders, and it doesn't matter what the reason for it is, it's not framed as a childcare or family friendly thing, you could just as easily apply for it if you're doing elite sports training, um, for instance, and we have indeed had applications for people who are (laughs) off to represent Australia in various things and need flexible training to accommodate their training schedules in sports, for example.
0: Yeah, and this feeds into some of your current work around the surgical identity shouldn't be this mould that everyone fits into. It is really meant to celebrate what you bring to the table.
1: So the PhD arose because um, after the master's, and everyone's like, wow, that's a fantastic piece of work it published so well, um, but that's just women. What about people coming from lower socioeconomic? What about uh, people from rural settings? What about um LGBT. What about um, non-white people? Um, what about first and family? You know, those who come to um, university where no one else in their family has ever come, and they can be the whitest, malest person you like, but but still, you know, there's a uh, inherent culture that they're not aware of. I became aware of this recently um, when I was talking to a new consultant who's um, from a family of tradies, plumbers, you know, um, and the like, and he said to me, I mean, he he, he looks when you look at him like a classic surgeon. You know, confident, tall, white male. And you think, gosh, you know, he's probably had a gilded path into surgery. But no, he said the first few years of medicine, if he was late to a lecture, he would just go and study. He didn't realize you could actually just waltz in the back of the room. He didn't, no one in his family had ever been to university. So there wasn't anyone to say, hey, mate, you know, you can just, you know, sneak in and sit in the back rows. Thought it was like school, you know, in school, if you're you're late, they're just like, you're on detention, get out or whatever um he also didn't realize you could talk to the lecturers about your assignments he thought that was like cheating yeah (laughs) yeah and so he scored very poorly for his first couple of years until someone was like you know you can just make an appointment with the lecturer and and ask them you know check check out how you're going on this assignment and he was like what really yeah
0: you're saying that even equipped with some of Um, the privileges that some of us might consider that person still brought about that diversity from their cultural perhaps upbringing
1: and so the word intersectionality is about that the idea that it's not so much about simple things like what race are you what gender are you you know you can't classified not all women are the same not all black people are the same not everyone who comes from Bendigo are the same you know it's you can't you cannot stereotype people like this people come at the intersection of multiple 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 different dimensions and we have to get better in surgery but also in medicine in general at really tailoring um, what we provide for people and not cookie-cuttering them
0: Now, our last question around some of your current work before we get to some reflection will be around your Twitter presence, which I should say is nothing short of remarkable. And for those people listening today, don't forget to give her a follow on Twitter, at liangria, for some simply great content. But for yourself today, what would you say is the value of this in your work?
1: It's just really powerful. So I will give a little caution for everyone joining Twitter for the first time it feels like a a fistfight in a pub the first time you join in because the algorithm hasn't gotten to know you. So it just throws all these posts at you and sees what you click on. But like all social media apps, it will gradually curate the content depending on what you click on. Um, So, Be a responsible Twitter user. Just keep clicking on things that you want. Like for me, it's surgical education, women in surgery, social equity issues, you know. And over the first few weeks and months, your Twitter feed will quieten down into just the things you want to see and become much more civilized, you know. So if you ever meet someone who's like, oh, Twitter's terrible. It's always a bin bin fire, you know, so many abusive people. And you're like, what are you clicking on? (laughs) You know, um, basically, it'll give you more of the company you keep. So um, so that's the thing with Twitter, but once, once the algorithm gets to know you, then it does all the hard work of putting you in contact with people who are just like you. I mean, who would have thought that there were that many surgeons who crochet, but there are, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so it's been wonderful networking, very international, um, got much more um, active during COVID, of course, because everyone was at home all of a sudden you know, I know you've interviewed Eric Levi and he's also very active on Twitter, but the, the two of us are the same. We've had speaking gigs because of Twitter. We connected with each other because of Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like we knew each other on Twitter before we ever met in person. Um, we've had speaking gigs. We've written papers on Twitter. We've, um, you know, been invited to conferences because of Twitter. And anytime you need to bounce an idea, like you're thinking, oh, I've got this question that's a bit oddball about, say, feedback and surgical education. Um you might not have that expertise within your own institution, but you check it out on Twitter and within minutes, you know, you've got people sending you papers or giving you high-level evidence. Also, you will never have to do CPD again. And <laughs> so it's like the best journal club ever because people will say, hey, I just published this, you know, hot off the press was being journal article. So you don't have to kind of go to the journal and read the contents page. It just comes to you. And then all the, like, most wonderful people, all the big commentators – um, will be on Twitter giving their take. So it's like getting, you know, 10 different editorials on that paper.
0: I know, all for yeah. free, all very accessible.
1: Brilliant. And so when colleagues who aren't on Twitter are like, what's your take on X, Y, Z? And you'll be like, well, <laughs> you know, here's what the British commentators seem to think. Here's what the UK commentators seem to think. Here's what I think from it. And they're like, wow.
0: Yeah.
1: You're so academic, Rhea. And it's like, no, not really.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so incredible. incredible incredible value to it if we take your words and proceed cautiously at the start not to be too overwhelmed by it
1: i'll tell you what else it does it makes you a better teacher so so like things like um someone will post i mean this is very surge twitter and quite nerdy but someone will post a picture of an instrument that's on their tray and say what does everyone call this and you'll get about 10 different names for the same instrument and people will argue what it's used for and what they prefer Mm -hmm. and it makes you realize that even though absolutely everyone in your institution uses a Babcock to mature the stoma or whatever. In actual fact, if you go over a country or two, that's not the case, you know? And so when I teach trainees, you know, and they're all different shapes and sizes. um, If I have to teach a trainee who's your classic six foot tall surgeon, I have the same problem I had in training, but in reverse, you know, I'm like, okay, I have to adapt this operation for your build. Um, But it makes you much more flexible because, you have the whole international surgical community to draw on. You're like, what's everyone's tips and tricks for doing this maneuver? Um, You know, so it makes you much more versatile as a teacher.
0: Amazing. And now to get to a couple of reflective questions that we're very keen to hear your perspective on. Uh, One of them would be around the values that you think have helped you the most to get to where you are today. What comes to your mind?
1: Integrity and stubbornness. I think are probably the two. Um, and probably the fact that I was never very socially adept has helped um, because if I was more socially adept, I probably would have learned to shut my mouth a lot earlier um, <laughs> and get myself into a lot less trouble than I get myself into because I'd read the social cues that you know say rear your way out of line here. But all social change, you know if we think about women's rights or LGBT, the debate about marriage equality, for example, it always starts with someone who's very unpopular to start with. You know, like the things that the early suffragettes went through, you know, hunger strikes, being arrested, beaten up, the things that the early gay rights activists went through. You know, it's like if you believe in it and it seems right to you, then yes, you will be unpopular to start with. And people will try and scuttle your career. Yes, they have tried to scuttle my career too. Um, (laughs) You you know, um, people don't like change and they don't like someone different. But if you are right and you have the courage of your convictions, then gradually, gradually, people will come to see that that is actually the right thing to do. So that's the integrity part, Um, and then the stubbornness is just well, you know, I am awfully stubborn, Um, and that is both a good and a bad. You know, there are times there are times where I should learn to let go a bit earlier, particularly when it doesn't matter. So certainly in motherhood, there are some things in retrospect, I'm like, gosh, I wish I hadn't been so stubborn about that. Cause really a year or two in retrospect, that didn't actually matter, but I made it (laughs) such a big deal and the kids are probably scarred forever from it. um, And I shouldn't have done that, (laughs) but we all live.
0: Yeah. And the value of reflection improves us for the future. Now for our last question for today, could you tell us about someone who's had a significant influence on your career and what did you learn from them?
1: I'll tell you what, people talk about mentors and I will say you always need a mentor that's outside medicine and amongst your group of mentors. So I'm one of those people that feels that everyone should have a group of mentors, not just yeah. one or two gurus, um, but because mentors do different things. You know, one might be for leadership, might, one might be more of a cheer squad. Sometimes you just need someone who's a bit of a mother, to be honest. <laughs> um, but one of my greatest mentors, and he's deceased now, poor thing, uh, was a guy called Norm Winterbottom. Um, he was 95 when he died. He was one of the last New Zealand diggers um, from World War II. He was an artillery man. And he was phenomenal. Um, I met him first when I was a teenager at a science summer camp. And he was phenomenal at putting everything in perspective for me. So I'd sit there going, oh, I stuffed up so badly today in theatre that the boss actually sent me out, like was like unscrub, leave. Um, <laughs> and I don't think I can ever go back. And he'd be like, you know... There was that day I was sitting in a foxhole, and the Germans were shooting at us, <laughs> and they managed to get the guy sitting three feet away from me, and there was blood all over the bottom of the trench. And they, he'd be like, "Has anyone died today?" And I'd be like, "No, I guess not." And he'd be like, "I went back to the front after that. Do you think you can get back to the theater?" And I'd be like, "Yeah, okay. Yeah. You're right." You know, I have to get everything in perspective. And he was just like that. He would never tell you what to do, but he would just tell a story from his own life. And he was marvelous. I, I, I'm, he wasn't just a mentor to me. You know, he was a mentor to lots of people who went to those science summer camps. And there's still a, a good core of us um, who still hang out with each other and reminisce about Norm.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but yeah, he was. He was. I think he was probably. Very significant because he was my mentor from when I first met him, aged about 15 or 16, uh, right through to when he passed away just a few years ago. So probably he's influenced me for a good 30 years.
0: Yeah, that is a very warming story story to hear. And may Norm rest in peace. Now, we are at the end of our conversation today. Mm -hmm. I have to say that we're so grateful for your time and contribution. And we wish you good luck in your own endeavors.
1: Oh, thank you for the opportunity. It's been wonderful. I hope the listeners find something in amongst that long, meandering rant um, that resonates with them.
0: Well, besides professionalism, humor, and just candid joy in the way which you speak, I'm sure our listeners have really enjoyed this chat today. So until next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We'd love to hear what you think, so leave us your comments and questions on our Facebook and Twitter pages at TTO Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to receive your regular dose of the Time app. We'd like to thank our sponsors, the Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne, for their continual support. This episode was brought to you by Ganisht Aidan. Chloe and Noreen, and we'll see you next time.